Welcome to The World in 10, the story of the world revealed and analysed by the Times of London's correspondents every day in 10 minutes. It is Alex Dibble and today I'm with Ellen Shearwood. More hostages have been released by Hamas. We're going to hear why they're releasing people in the way that they are, slowly, one by one. And we'll bring you an impassioned response from Israel to growing calls for a ceasefire. Yesterday, Sharon Lifshitz spoke to Times Radio. Her parents were among the hostages being held by Hamas. We have not heard from them since they were um, abducted uh, from their home on the 7th of October. So this is now two and a half weeks and we don't have any, any news about them whatsoever. Less than 24 hours later, Sharon was with her mother again. Her mother's Yosheved Lifshitz, and she's one of two hostages who were released last night. At a hospital in Tel Aviv, with Sharon translating, she told the world what happened. My mum is saying that she was taken on the back of a motorbike and that while she was being taken, she was hit by uh, sticks by Shabab. Shabab. Yeah, Shabab people. Until they reached the tunnels, there they walked for a few kilometers on the wet ground. There are a huge, um, huge um, network of tunnels underneath. It looks like a spider web. Now Sharon's father, Obed, is still being held hostage. So far, Hamas has released four people gradually, which has led many people to ask the question, is this tactical? Today, that question has been answered for The Times by Michael Milstein. He is the former head of the Palestinian Department in Israel Defense Forces Intelligence. And he told me it is tactical, it's deliberate, and it's cynical. I do think that Hamas recognized the, uh, the discourse in Israel and in the American administration about the priority. What is the priority uh, during the war? Is it to uh, bring the collapse of Hamas regime or to uh, release all the hostages? And they do understand that there is a dilemma among the Israeli politicians and among the Israeli society. And they want, you know, they recognize a rift and they do want to make this rift broader. So uh, by by releasing in a gradual manner hostages, they do believe that they will they will uh, actually make the, the dilemma among the Israelis tougher. And by that, they will maybe delay the uh, the uh, future offensive against Gaza. With regard to Palestinians in Gaza, the UN says some are returning to their homes in the north because in the south there's not enough food or shelter. It's a humanitarian crisis and it's led 249 charities and organisations to call for a ceasefire so that they can get aid in. But the response from Israel has been clear and it's been no ceasefire. Aylan Levy is an Israeli government spokesperson and he has told us why. The clip you're about to hear includes some very distressing details. If you'd prefer not to listen, when I finish talking, pause the podcast and scroll forward by 40 seconds. This is Mr Levy. 
there is going to be no ceasefire. You know, I saw one video with a first responder who says he entered a house and there was a whole family who had been tied up and they'd gouged out the father's eyes, cut off the mother's breasts, chopped off the little boy's fingers and cut off the girl's foot. And then they sat around the table and they ate. We're talking about pathological psychopathy. I'm sure some people who are calling for a ceasefire have the best of intentions because the images of war are difficult to watch. They're gruesome, but this is a war that Israel has to win because we will not go back to a world in which terrorists can brutally massacre and torture and behead and burn our people with impunity. That's what a call for a ceasefire is. And that sentiment's been echoed by Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu as Emmanuel Macron visited today. We covered this a few weeks ago on The World in 10, but there has been an increasing number of people in North Korea defecting. Um, In fact, it's gone up threefold since last year after a slump, if you like, during COVID. The reason they're leaving is because lots of people are dying from starvation, but the reasons also include ethical ones and personal ones. And the reason why we're talking about this today is that a family of four have been found to have escaped on a small boat. And that small boat part is interesting because it means there's been a shift in the ways in which people are defecting. So before the pandemic, they'd crossed the border between North Korea and China. But during COVID, security there was stepped up. And now there's a different reason they're not using that route. The Times Asia editor Richard Lloyd Parry has this story and can explain. What's happened now is that because the pandemic has has come to an end more or less, North Korea has relaxed that border with China. So it's now become easier for China to send people back. So that's what they're doing. They're rounding people up, people who to them are illegal immigrants. And according to recent reports, they've started sending hundreds of them already back into North Korea. Now there, you know, according to the United Nations, they face a very uncertain fate. Um, in North Korean eyes, they have betrayed their country. So they could face you know, quite serious penalties, according to the UN, up to and including torture and even execution. So even though the UN's asked China not to send people back, it's still doing so. China's not owning up to this. These are reports that are coming out through NGOs from journalists in the area. But it seems pretty clear that that's what's happening. A South Korean newspaper had a fairly convincing report that 600 people have been sent back. And there are stories coming out also of a detention centre, which is the kind of halfway house between being rounded up and sent back, where there's many as 2,000 people detained who will, it's believed, soon be sent to North Korea. Meanwhile, South Korea is preparing for more arrivals. And that family of four that we mentioned a few moments ago will face questioning to check if they are legitimate, if they're not spies, essentially. And if everything's okay, they'll be welcomed in. It's been dubbed the modern day Lysistrata. Well, kind of. All women in Iceland are on strike today against gender inequality. So that's nurses, university lecturers, even the Prime Minister. And programming at the National Broadcaster has been partially cut off too. 
And this is the first event of this scale, really, since the Women's Day Off in 1975, which was a real turning point for women's rights in Iceland. There have been a few events of this nature since. Uh, For example, women were stopping at different times of the day to mark and point out the gender pay gap. In reality, Iceland is one of the world's most equal countries, nearly half of its parliament's women, and it's topped the global gender gap rankings for the last 14 years. Now, Oliver Moody's been writing about this for The Times, and he joins us on the podcast now. Oliver, I guess our biggest question is, why are they doing this now then? What do they want to achieve? The most obvious issue uh, remains the disparity in pay, which is on average about 10%, which is which is very good by sort of even Western European standards, but does widen to, to more than 20% in some sectors. There's very, very low levels of female representation among the chief executives of the largest Icelandic companies. And there's also a survey that has attracted a lot of attention showing that uh, 40% of Icelandic women say they have been, suffered uh, sexual harassment or violence. So Do you think this will have an impact beyond Iceland's borders? Will other countries follow suit? To be quite honest, I would be very surprised in that outside the other Nordic countries, there are very few states that have really made gender equality so much a part of their raison d'etre. So um, it would be quite surprising to me if other European countries outside Iceland and Scandinavia were to do something like this but you know international politics is a very unpredictable environment at the moment so never say never that's all we've got time for on today's world in 10 but before we go we just wanted to point you in the direction of another piece which is up now on the times website helen rumbling who's been on the world in 10 a few times herself Mm. has been taking a look at the kiss and tell media culture of the noughties in the wake of the david beckham documentary on netflix That should uh, keep you busy until we bring you another episode (laughs) of The World in 10 tomorrow. See you then.